Our reading from God's holy word this morning is taken from the Gospel of John, chapter 7, verse 1 through 31. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he did not want to walk in Judea, because the Jews sought to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. His brothers, therefore, said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers did not believe in him. Then Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its works are evil. You go up to this feast. I am not yet going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. When he had said these things to them, he remained in Galilee. But when his brothers had gone up, then he also went up to the feast, not openly, but as it were in secret. Then the Jews sought him at the feast and said, Where is he? And there was much complaining among the people concerning him. Some said, He is good. Others said, No, on the contrary, he deceives the people. However, no one spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. Now, about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. And the Jews marveled, saying, How does this man know letters having never studied? Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone will to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak of my own authority. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. Did not Moses give you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The people answered and said, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered and said to them, I did one work and you all marveled. Moses therefore gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath, so that the law of Moses should not be broken, are you angry with me because I made a man completely well on the Sabbath? Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Now some of them from Jerusalem said, Is this not he whom they seek to kill? But look, he, is spe he speaks boldly, and they say nothing to him. Do the rulers know indeed that this truly is the Christ? However, we know where this man is from, but when the Christ comes, no one will know where he is from. Then Jesus cried out as he taught in the temple, saying, You both know me, and you know where I am from, and I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. But I know him, for I am from him, and he sent me. Therefore they sought to take him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. And many of the people believed in him and said, When the Christ comes, will he do more signs than these which this man has done? 
the gospel of our Lord. Praise be to you, O Christ. And please be seated. <laughs> In higher churches than we are, there is usually a small little room just to the side of the pulpit called a sacristy. A sacristy is where when the minister is getting ready to lead the worship, he will go in there and he has vestments, he has robes that he puts on. They're hanging in the sacristy, so that's where he gets into his robes, and then he comes out and he leads the service. When I was a Reformed Episcopalian, there was a, a joke that was told concerning sacristies. It was said that if you came into a church building and you weren't quite sure what kind of church it was, you could go into the sacristy, and when you went in there, you would see what type of church it was by what you found in the sacristy. If you went in there and you saw in front of where the priest would vest, the minister, a picture of the Pope, you would know this is a Roman Catholic church because there's the Pope, you know. If you went into the sacristy and you saw uh, flat physical representations of early church fathers, well, you would know that you were in an Eastern Orthodox church because that's what the minister would look at when he's getting ready. If you went into the sacristy and you found not a picture at all, but rather on a table, an open copy of the Word of God, you would be able to generally say, okay, this is a Lutheran church because that is what the Lutheran minister would be seeing when he was vesting. And if it were an Episcopal church, you would go in and you would see a mirror. Think about that for a second. The joke is actually funny because it centers on the concept of final authority. And in those various traditions, uh, the final authority in religion is very different. In a Romanist church, they do not technically hate the Bible. If you get the impression they do, they don't. In fact, in a Roman church, you will have several readings of Scripture, and in this coming Lord's Day, how many passages of Scripture do you think will be read in the average Protestant church? Anybody want to hazard a guess? The average Protestant church. Well, the answer 25 years ago when I knew the statistics, so it might be different, but I don't think so. The average statistic 25 years ago was there will be one verse of Scripture read in the average Protestant church of worship, and that will be the verse the preacher will preach on. So, you know, Roman service has a lot more Scripture than the average Protestant one. But the final authority in religion in Rome is not Scripture. It is what they call the magisterium. I have here um, one of the prizes of my library. It's uh, the St. Joseph edition of the New American Bible, the revised edition. It's leather, and it's kind of the, it is the flagship study Bible. If you're going to be a Romanist, you know, this is the top of the line study Bible you could have. And it's got the, the New American translation in it, which is a Roman translation. Um, 
the revision actually makes it better. It's, it's kind of an interesting Bible. But in the front cover, there is a series of articles on the issue of sacred tradition, the magisterium, and scripture. And I thought about reading this outright, but it would be two pages worth of reading. So I'm going to summarize. If anyone wants to challenge what I'm saying after church, I'll let you read it or I'll read it to you. But uh, in their study Bible, they say scripture is the word of God, but you can't really understand it. Not, not the way the magisterium understands it. And the magisterium is the clergy. It's the priests, the, the bishops, the archbishops, the metropolitans, all the way up. And the reason why they can understand it and you can't is because the priests have received from the Holy Spirit an anointing in their ordination that keeps them from getting it wrong. You can read the Bible, but you don't have the Spirit's promise that you'll understand it. But that promise has been given to the ministry, to the magisterium, and they will explain Scripture to you. And also, um, it's, it's obviously clear that Jesus of Nazareth taught other things than what is recorded in the Bible. Well, lucky for you and me, the magisterium has collected all that. It's not in the Bible, but it's in sacred tradition. It's in the, the, the books of, of the various uh, theologians and scholars and the tradition. Uh, and it's just as authoritative as scripture. And the people who can interpret scripture for you can also interpret tradition for you. And that's what the highest authority is. If, if we were going to be like this, you would have to look at me and say, Russ clearly is given the spirit more than I am. And he is obviously blessed to never get anything wrong. Right? I mean, clearly ministers never get anything wrong. Uh, ministers don't have a sinful nature, really. They don't twist anything. You never hear about scandals with ministers morally, because that can't happen, because we're, we're touched with the spirit, so that didn't happen, right? Of course it happens. But in Roman thought, their guys are blessed by spirit, and they can tell you what the Bible means, even if it clearly looks like it's different. That makes the magisterium the authority in religion. In the Eastern Orthodox tradition, uh, they put a huge amount of stock in the church fathers, at least some of them. If you are Eastern Orthodox, you probably from the cradle have been trained in knowing lots of Christians that you and I as Protestants probably don't even know the name of. But they were Christians, and they had really solid minds, and there's a whole body of Christians who have studied the Bible and taught the Bible for 2,000 years. And in Eastern Orthodoxy, uh, it's kind of similar to Romanism. God has blessed the church to know what the Bible means, and that means that these Christian fathers are able to define the Bible for you and God's will for you. And they never argue at all. You never go to the church fathers and see one father say one thing and another father say another thing and then watch their disciples argue for 200 years. You never see that. Uh, the church has obviously spoken with one voice 
the the Eastern Church's fathers have never contradicted. It's clearly not true. I mean, honestly, it's not true. The early church fathers were Christian people, and they were good theologians. But uh, the fact of the matter is, you do watch them argue with one another. Just like today, you've got godly theologians, good men who study the word, who argue right in front of us. I mean, that's just kind of the nature of theology. But in Eastern Orthodoxy, they are the final authority. And the way that works out is they kind of pick and choose certain fathers and say, okay, that's the canon. Uh, but that's the final authority. You're standing on theologians. You're standing on Christian men. In Pentecostalism, they love the Bible. There's no saying they don't. But if you are a Pentecostal, there's something kind of akin to the magisterium. It's the inner experience of the Holy Spirit. We're promised in Scripture the Holy Spirit will be in us. We're, we're promised the Spirit will talk to our spirit. That, that's from God. And if you're a Pentecostal, you value that really, really highly. Uh, it's not that you don't study the Bible, but you believe that God talks directly to you, and that is generally what motivates you. Uh, you might have a nudge of the Spirit. You might get a word from the Spirit. But the living experience of the Spirit, that is really important to you to the point that in Pentecostalism, you often have that as what motivates without a whole lot of looking at, is this from God? In, in 1 John, the Apostle John does not tell the church, now the Spirit doesn't talk to your heart or that anything supernatural doesn't happen. But the apostle says, test the spirits, see if they're from God. That gets run over a lot in Pentecostalism. And John says there's more than one spirit out there. So you might be being talked to by spirit, but are you guaranteeing it's the Holy Spirit? When I was just first in my ministry, there was a uh, situation that happened at a church in Richmond where a charismatic family who led the worship at one of the fairly larger evangelical churches in town, um, at the congregational meeting for that church, they stood up and said, we have received a word from the Spirit. The Spirit has spoken to us. Um, God has revealed to us that the pastor of this church is supposed to marry my wife. God spoke, and he told me that God is supposed to marry, that, that the, the pastor is to marry my wife. Because what's going to happen is I'm going to die, and when I die, uh, my wife is supposed to marry the pastor. Well, the pastor's wife was also sitting beside the pastor and thought this was a very strange word from God, um, but it was declared in the congregational meeting. This is what God has said, and how can you argue with the Spirit, right? That's the final authority. Well, for the church's credit, the elders said, you know, yeah, we can argue with the Spirit, because this is clearly not the Holy Spirit. The, the Spirit is not going to uh, support adultery. That's not what the Spirit does. But this family got mad at them and said, you are just unspiritual, you don't listen to the Spirit, we're going to leave, which was probably the best for that church. 
Um, if you are a liberal, the highest authority for you in religion is effectively the human intellect. Liberals might study their Bible. I have a very hard time saying liberals love their Bible. That, that one's tough. But um, ultimately, their final authority is human intellect, and more so, it's the trends of the intellect of the moment. What was obviously intellectually true 100 years ago is now totally considered false by today's modern liberals, but they've got it right by their human intellect because the human intellect cannot be wrong. The human intellect cannot be tricked. There's, there's no connection to the human intellect and the human will and desire that might lead the intellect astray. That doesn't happen. So the intellect can be the highest authority in religion. And that's clearly, again, not true. Um, but that is the highest authority for a liberal. But you and I are Protestants. And for a Protestant, and, and, and listen clearly, I did not say we are Reformed. I said we are Protestants. This is true for us Reformed, but it's really true for everything Protestant. For a Protestant, the highest authority in religion is what? What? Yeah, Scripture. It's, it's the Word of God. We have for, you know, ever since the Reformation and even back before then, you had Christians saying the highest authority, not the only authority, but the highest authority in religion is the written Word of God. It's breathed out by the Holy Spirit. We would, we would see what the Apostle says in 2 Timothy as kind of a statement of what the highest authority in religion should be. It's verse 14 through 17 of 2 Timothy 3. Paul is writing to Timothy and he says, But you must continue in the things in which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God, literally it means breathed out, and is profitable for doctrine, which is what we believe, for reproof, which is contradicting those who are standing against God's will, for correction, which is kind of a more gentle uh, manifestation of reproof, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. If you are a Protestant, that is basically a summary of what you believe about practically the final authority in religion. The Bible has been breathed out by God. It is useful for everything that we really need in religion so that every good work that God calls us to do, we are equipped to do it because he has given us that in Scripture. And uh, when we talk about the concept of works, biblically a work is anything you do. And so it's not just what you think about as an outer action. It's also what you think about. It's what you say. These are things you generate well, uh, every good work, the Bible has been given to be your toolbox. 
it is the foundation for all religion. It does not say that that's the only authority of all type anywhere. You have other authorities. You have uh, emotion experience. You have tradition. You have an experience of the Holy Spirit. You have uh, several things that are authoritative, but the highest authority and what all these things must answer to from a Protestant point of view is the Holy Scripture. That is where we plant our feet practically. Why can I say God wants X or God teaches you to believe X? Well, I have the text. I have the Bible as a foundation that says this is the authority. Now, someone will say, well, our highest authority is Jesus, and he is the word of God. And they won't be wrong. But where do you know Jesus? I mean, honestly, how do you know Jesus in any objective sense? Well, you know him from the revelation of God. He's, he is introduced to you in the word of God. Um, so, yay, Protestants stand on the word of God. Wave the flag, aren't we great? But let me throw let me throw a wrench in here. What if what if that were true and the word of God is the final authority? And the things we say about it being the final authority are true, like it is inerrant, it, it never makes any error, it is infallible, it always does what God wants it to do. It is plenary inspired, which means that every word of it is what God wants it to be. It is perspicuous, which ironically means clear and understandable, and nobody knows that word. Uh, it's all those things as the foundation of, of our religion. But what if all of that were true, but we were not able to say definitively we know exactly what the text of the Bible is. Now, God inspired the word. He spoke through the apostles and prophets. Uh, all those things are true about the original text. But in uh, Jude 3, uh, the brother of our Lord writes under inspiration of the Spirit and says, uh, I urge you to urgently contend for the faith that has once and for all been given to the saints of God, right? What if, hypothetically, the Christian church didn't obey that perfectly down through the ages, and one of the consequences of that was that we lost a knowledge of what the text of the Bible actually said? Would that affect our foundation? Now, this hypothetical can't be true if you place your feet on the Bible. Uh, you've got promises from God that say that won't happen. You have Psalm 12, which reads this way in verse 6 and 7. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver tried in a furnace, purified seven times. You shall keep them, O Lord. You shall preserve them from this generation forever. So notice uh, the psalmist is saying uh, God is purifying his words so that they are absolutely pure. And not only that, he is guarding them. And he is guarding them from who? He is guarding them from, quote, this generation. 
which suggests that the human being may not like the word of God very much, that the average human being will want to attack the word of God, but God is actively preserving his word, literally preserving it forever, so that man will not destroy the word of God. In uh, Proverbs chapter 30 and verse 5 and 6, we read, Every word of God is pure. And if you look in the Amplified, it gives you a kind of a, a broader understanding of what the Hebrew is saying. Every word of God is tested and refined. He is a shield to those who put their trust in him. So there, Solomon is saying, just like Psalm 12, uh, God is maintaining his word, making sure it is pure. And the very fact that the word is sure and pure, God is a shield to you in that. You are protected from those who would like to harm you. The world, the flesh, the devil, they would all like to get to you. But God is a shield to you specifically because he has made his word pure. So if the Bible is true, then what I'm saying won't happen. But if what I said happened, you could have the Bible in your hand say that, and it's not what was original. We just don't know. And hypothetically, that is effectively the liberal narrative about the Bible. <clears throat> You have the Bible, especially the New Testament, being written by hand and copied by hand, being spread through the church throughout the Mediterranean world. It is being spread when it is illegal to have a copy of it. It is literally a death sentence to have books of the New Testament. But the church is copying them by hand and passing them out all across the Mediterranean for roughly about 350 years. Have you ever copied something by hand? Something significant. You've got an article, you're going to write the whole thing out by hand, copying. If you've ever done that, you will notice it's almost impossible to perfectly copy a manuscript. Your eye slips, you jump a word, you misspell a word, you know, that sort of thing. But... You copy it by hand, and you get a copy from a copy from a copy from a copy. That is the way things are for roughly 400 years. And then it's the same afterwards, except now it's legal to have the New Testament. So more copying is being done. But nothing gets standardized until about the time of the Reformation, where you have the printing press. The liberal narrative on the uh, text of scripture is that the early Christians who were under the sentence of death to have a copy of the New Testament were actually fairly careless. They copied these books by hand, but they didn't do a good job of trying to keep it what it is. And so very early in history, the Christians had all sorts of textual variants in their manuscripts and that really did not matter to them. They copied them by hand, and when new manuscripts had other errors in them. Now, this is the very thing that can get them killed, but it's not that important to them. 
they just copy them and they copy them and copy them. And finally, when things are legal, nobody has any idea what the text is. But about that time, the early church gets together and says, we need to standardize the text. And so they begin to copy a more standardized text, and it still gets uh, Mars in it. But uh, now, you know, it's a little better, and it passes into our hands. But we have no idea what the text was. Does that narrative seem like it would be realistic? Your entire life depends upon you not having these books, but you have made a decision that you are going to go against the state and all the powers that be, and you're going to have them. Not only that, you're going to copy them and give them to other people who could, in fact, turn you in. And so you could die. But you're not going to be real careful about copying them because they're not that significant to you. Oh, and once it's legal, the early church will get together and standardize all the text when it starts going out. But there's not going to be any record of that in church history. All the church historians who write about church history, they're never going to mention that, but it's going to happen. Does that seem very realistic to you? The truth is, uh, there is more copies of the New Testament than any other ancient book from antiquity. There's on the order of about 20,000 ancient manuscripts. Most of them are in Greek or they are in Latin. Uh, there are some in Aramaic. There are some in Georgian. There are some in Arabic and a couple other languages. Uh, there's actually a number of them in Bulgarian, which is kind of interesting. But 20,000 manuscripts are out there to be found from history. And if you lay them side by side, you see that, yes, these were copied by hand. In each copy, you will see, okay, you know, this guy misspelled this or this guy misplaced this word in this sentence. But when you lay them side by side, those 20,000 manuscripts really consistently testify to a text. Uh, there is what's called the majority text, and when you use that term, it's very, very, very the majority. It is thousands upon thousands of texts all testified, this is what it says. But there is a small handful of texts that are not like that. Uh, when I say a small handful, I mean five. And two of them are given preference over the others. It's one called Synapticus, and it's one called Vaticanus. And these are copies of the New Testament that are very, very different than the grand majority. Um, one was found in the basement of the Vatican, one was found in a monastery on Mount Sinai. That's where they get their names. Um, they're very, very old. Very old. There's no question with the world. And modern liberals believe because they are very old, they kind of go back before all this nonchalant copying happened, and they testify to what the real text is. Now, you need to understand, neither of these manuscripts agree with each other at all. In fact, if you've ever looked into these manuscripts, they both contain accounts of things that the other doesn't contain and that the Bible you know doesn't contain. They are missing other things, and, and they are very, very different. I mean, both from each other and the Bible. 
but they're old. And not only that, they're in really good condition. Now, think about that for a second. You are an early churchman. Your entire religion is defined in the written word of God. If your church has a full copy of the New Testament, you are wonderfully blessed, and everybody is going to be passing these around to read them. But your copy from 1,700 years ago is in pristine condition today. How does that happen? I mean, if it's in use, it's going to get wore out, which is why people are copying them. But these manuscripts are in pristine condition. They say very strange things. And they tend to lean in what's called a Gnostic direction. Gnosticism was a competing religion with Christianity that had a totally different doctrine, but it, it incorporated Jesus into itself. And these, these manuscripts tend to testify in that direction. <coughs> Why are they in perfect condition? If you're a conservative, you say, I don't think people use these very much. And if they didn't use them very much, what does that testify about them? Well, it testifies the church didn't really trust them. But they did survive, and there they are. When moderns translate the New Testament, they tend to lean on those manuscripts. And they do so because they have an idea that the church wasn't very careful, and more than that, when the church dealt with manuscripts and saw things in them, they overtly changed them if they were awkward, if it didn't have good grammar, or if it was embarrassing to orthodoxy. So uh, modern translations translate things so that they take the most awkward reading, they take the one that is most embarrassing to orthodoxy, and the one that breaks grammar. And the end result is that most modern translations are based not on these manuscripts, but on a scholarly consensus that is drawn out of these manuscripts. Uh, and you get what's underneath the New American Standard Bible, what's underneath the English Standard Version, what's underneath the New International Version. Um, they are very different than the Bible that the Reformers translated. The Reformers translated the King James Bible, of course, but that wasn't the only Bible they translated into English. It wasn't the only Bible they translated into other languages either. I mean, you got Luther's German Bible, you got Spanish Bible. Uh, several translations are taking place during the Reformation. And the Reformers had the exact opposite idea of what was happening. The Reformers said, God has preserved his word. Now, they did not know about the existence of Synapticus, but they knew all about the existence of Vaticanus and the other four. And they specifically rejected them. They said, we believe since God preserved his word, the, the real word is going to be what is in the majority of texts. That the early church cared very much about the Bible. The early, early church wanted to get it right. Uh, the early church realized this was its lifeblood. And so the majority of manuscripts will tell you what God said. And what came out of that was the Geneva Bible, 
the Great Bible, the Bishop's Bible, the, the King James Bible, and even today there are a number of translations that hold that as the governing principle for translation. Uh, I preach on the New King James Bible. There's the Modern English Bible that was just translated a couple years ago. It's it's translated that way. Um, in fact, I got a copy of that right here if you want to see what that looks like. This one is kind of parallel with the King James. I, I like this. Um, the Greens Bible, which is sometimes called the King James too. It's in perfect modern English, but it's translated with the same principles as the King James Bible and the other Reformational Bibles, the idea that God has preserved his word. So there's not one perfect translation. All translations are the work of men. But the principles underlying how you do them is very different. And um, what would it do to your faith if somebody looked you in the eye and said, we can't really know what the text means, and we also will never able to be able to know it? We are seeking to refine the text by our scholarly approaches, but even if the very manuscript the Apostle Paul wrote to the Galatians, that very parchment, were on our table, we would not be able to identify it as the autograph, and so we will never actually know what was said, but we're working on really getting it close. How's that, how's that work for you? God has spoken, but we're not quite sure what he said. If you're a Reformed Christian, how does that work for you? Because as Reformed Christians, what is the essence of the Christian religion? It's covenant, right? Well, what's a covenant? A covenant is where a greater and a lesser make promises to one another, promises that they will keep, in fact, we see God making promises to man and God being the not lying God. So our entire religion is based around the idea that God has spoken and we can believe what he says. We can trust in what he says. Literally, heaven or hell depends upon trusting in what God says. But I can't know what God says. Why am I going into all of this? Well, uh, here in our text, there is a slight textual variant. In verse 1 through 7, there is a word that I read that if you were following me in the English Standard Version or in the NIV or something like that, you would have noticed the word was not present. And you might have thought, well, you know, that's kind of interesting and gone on. But that word is the word yet. Um, Jesus' brothers are goading him, and they say, you need to go up to the feast. Um, you want to make something of yourself. You want to be a religious leader. And you're acting in a way that doesn't make that happen. Anyone who wants to be a big deal in religion, they got to be out there and be seen. You know, you gotta gotta show yourself to people, and you're not doing that. So, saddle the donkey. Let's go to Jerusalem. 
And Jesus says in the grand majority of biblical texts, I am not yet going to this feast. Now, you guys can go anytime because the world can't hate you, but the world hates me because I testify against it. I am not yet going up to this feast. If you read from the, the eclectic text, the scholarly text, the word yet is not there. So Jesus looks his brothers in the eye and says, I am not going to this feast. But then he goes. The average reader would kind of just say, well, that's interesting, and jump over it. But think about what implications that has. Jesus the Christ has looked his brothers in the eye and told them an absolute lie. And the apostle John has told us he told them a lie. Come on, get your bags. We got to get to Jerusalem. I'm not going. You guys go. And then afterwards, he sneaks out to the feast. How does that pair up against a few other passages? Um, Think about what the apostle says in Titus chapter 1. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, According to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began, but has in due time manifested his word through preaching, which was committed to me. Did you hear how Paul defined God? God cannot lie. And of course he can't lie because God is literally truth, right? It's of his essence. We are told with the wicked God is shrewd, but that's not the same thing as lying. A lie is an absolute non-truth. It is a deceit. And Paul says we are trusting in eternal life from God who cannot lie. And he has spoken to us and said, you can have eternal life in Jesus Christ. So there the apostle is basing religion off the fact God can't lie. It is part of his nature. God doesn't lie. But in these few manuscripts, Jesus lies. So what do you deduce from that if that is really the truth? Well, there's a couple things you might deduce. One is... Well, Jesus is God, and he lied, so one of these texts is wrong. Either God can lie, or, um, you know. Or there is another deduction you can make. Jesus lied. God never lies. I guess Jesus isn't God. But that's kind of what you're left with. And in fact, more than that, you've got another text you have to deal with. The Apostle Peter in 1 Peter writes this of Jesus. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps, who committed no sin, who committed no sin, and he's quoting the Old Testament, a prophecy about Christ, 
who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So the Apostle Peter says, Jesus, who saves our souls, who delivers us to God, he never sinned, nor was, quote, deceit found in his mouth. It's a direct prophecy of who the Christ will be. Now you drop the word yet from the text. How does that match with what Peter has said? The answer is it doesn't. This kind of scenario happens all over that eclectic text. Now, you will hear scholars say, now, uh, yeah, um, roughly about about uh, 15% of verses in the New Testament are affected by this. But you need to know that no cardinal doctrine of Christianity is affected by it. Is that true? Well, kind of at a macro level, sort of a little bit. But that's on purpose. When you look at these various texts, they've picked the readings, and they've tried to make sure it sounded like classic Christianity. They didn't have to do that. But even in what they've done, these sort of things happen. Uh, another good example of this is 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. In the King James and the Geneva Bible, that sort of thing, uh, it reads like this. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. Here is the same verse, but it's drawn from the numerical standard Bible. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He was re revealed in the flesh, was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. Do you notice anything different? In the vast majority of texts, it says God was revealed in the flesh. In a tiny, tiny group of manuscripts, it says he. Now, the difference between the word he in Greek and the word God in Greek is not even a letter. It is a part of a letter. The word theos begins with a letter that is shaped like an O and has a dot in the middle. And the word he is the same word, except the letter is just an O without a dot. And so it's very easy to picture a tired scribe writing by candlelight, reading the text. He happens to just slightly misread the word. He leaves out the dot. It could happen to anybody. It ends up in a manuscript or two, and then it gets caught, you know. 
The same thing is true with the word yet. They're reading the sentence along, they're tired, they might be talking to somebody, and it just kind of, they jump a word. Uh, it gets caught a few manuscripts later, it stops getting copied, um, and that's what it looks like. But liberals want to make the marring the text. Why do they want to make the marring the text in First Timothy? Well, let me tell you. Here is the mystery of our religion, the secret of godliness. When you use the word he instead of God, it makes Jesus the embodiment of what godliness is, but it, it stops short of making him divine. That is literally the liberal definition of who God is, of who Jesus is. He, he, he's perfectly godly, but he's not God. And so now you're in the universalist Unitarian church and you're reading, oh, it doesn't say God, it says godliness. Yay. That's what we've been telling people. That's what's going on in these kind of circumstances. Um, Jesus doesn't lie. And if Jesus lies, you've got a really, really bad problem. Uh, can you trust a liar? Do you trust liars? I don't. When I find out someone has lied to me, you might get back in my good graces, but it's because you repented, and I believe there's change in your life. I don't trust a liar, and why would you? They're untrustworthy. As Reformed Christians, you are trusting God with your very eternal soul. Heaven or hell for eternity is based on, is God trustworthy? The blessings of this life are based on whether God is trustworthy. You can hear the Apostle Paul say, now if the resurrection isn't true, we're to be pitied more than all men. Why? Because it's not true, and we're basing our life on a lie. <laughs> but this has all been a hypothetical. The good news is <clears throat> Psalm 12 and Proverbs 30 are God's promises. And God actually keeps them. God promises that the Bible which the Christian church has received from antiquity is actually the Bible. And it has been preserved by his hand. He has, he has winnowed it so that it is perfect. He has protected it from this generation forever. He has chosen to shield the church by the perfection of the word, God has promised, and the Bible defines God as the not lying God, and I already showed you that. That is literally the definition the apostle uses. God doesn't lie. And God has promised this foundation we stand on, this practical foundation that puts us in touch with Jesus, is solid. It is, a, it is a gaslighting for someone to come along and say, you know, the church for 2,000 years didn't really have the Bible, but luckily we have handcrafted a Bible that did not exist, but here it is, let me give it back to you. Not so God keeps his word. Now, a liberal response to this would be, well, you know, Jesus is the authority. 
And, you know, the real Jesus didn't care that much about the Bible. The real Jesus was kind of fast and loose with the Bible. He played games with it. He's not like you fundamentalists that make the Bible literally true. Let's listen to the words of Jesus taken from the Gospels. Uh, In this Gospel that we're reading through, in John chapter 10, in verse 35, Jesus is going to say, quote, If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken. Now he's talking to somebody, and this is in the middle of a conversation. But Jesus says boldfacedly, now the scripture cannot be broken. God gave the word. It will not be broken. It cannot be. Or how about what Jesus will say in the Gospel of Mark? Jesus speaks to the Pharisees, and he says, He answered and said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups and many other things you do. He said to them, all too well you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father or mother, whatever profit you may have received from me is poor bond, that is a gift to God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or his mother. Making the word of God of no effect through your tradition, which you have handed down, and many such things you do. Now, does that sound like someone who plays fast and loose with the Bible? Does that sound like the modern hippie Jesus of liberalism? That's the Son of God saying the Word of God can't be broken. That's the Son of God saying God has spoken by the Scripture And any time you contradict the scripture, you are contradicting God. You call yourself a Christian. What does that mean? But you are a follower of Christ. You are in Christ. You are a little Christ. Can you wear the name? If the scripture is not held by you as the word of God breathed out, can you honestly say that title belongs to me? No, our Lord held the scripture in full and complete honor. He did not say to his brothers, now you guys go, I'm not going, and then lie. God always keeps his word. He is not deceived. 